You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. So it's 7.30 a.m. in California, and you're done with your grocery shopping. Kids are set up for school? Yep, yep. Got to – they start at 8.45, but we didn't have any milk, so I was like, I got to go out and get something or else uh, they're going to wake up pissed off. (laughs) They need their cereals and stuff like that. Yes, they do. Do you normally go grocery shopping at like 6 a.m.? No, usually I'm running right now. So this is usually my running time. Um, you know, it gets hot over here. Uh, this weekend was 116. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's not a real temperature. Yeah, I was like, oh, dude, it was, it was freaking hot, dude. And then I think in the valley it was 121. They had a record. So I was like, oh, yeah. But I'm like, Northridge is like the gateways of hell. So. It is what it is. <laughs> Man, Bracken, I don't know about you, but we have a cold front here. Our high today is 58 degrees. Yeah, our high is 59 today. <laughs> that's what we're dealing with right now. That's, that's nice. That's that's real nice shit. That's so are you, are you skipping your run right now to chat with us? Um, well, I kind of drank a lot last night, so I kind of woke up late. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I messed up. I, was, I, I, had, I had the alarm go off at like 5.15, and I was like, oh, man, like, what the hell did I set that for? And then I, I woke up at like six and I was like, Oh, I remember now. Damn it. Like, what am I doing? <laughs> so then I had to like get up, get ready. And I was about to run. And then Natalie's like, we don't have milk. Like the kids are going to wake up and they're not going to have anything. I'm like, okay, we got to go to the grocery store. So it's been a hectic morning. Yeah. But Is that a typical Monday night for you? Uh, not really. No, <laughs> but, um, it's been a, a tough weekend this weekend. So, um, yeah, it's kind of making do, so it's all what right. What's a tough weekend look for, like for Mark Batras? Is it Batras or Batras? Uh, it, it's it's just like ba, and then you say three in Spanish, which is tres. So okay. batres, that's it. So usually I, I just say Batras, and that's fine. Okay. But um, yeah, like uh, we recently bought a uh, 30-foot sailboat. So this thing is... We just got it finished up. We've had it for about two months now. And yeah, we just finished fixing it up and everything. And it took a long time to get it all like ready to go, all outfitted. And and we took it to Catalina twice already. And we've been enjoying our, our boat. Uh, well, we have partners with the boat. And one of the partners um, decided to beach it on, uh, on uh, in uh, Huntington and uh, got destroyed by waves so to the boat (laughs) (laughs) destroyed 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 it's gone like there's nothing left of it just yeah i'm like i you know i woke up on saturday and then he you know there's a message like hey something happened to the boat and then i was like oh dude like what's going on i ended up having to call the insurance company and they told me yeah there's nothing left like it's gone it is completely eradicated it, 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 there's nothing left of it and then i went to check it out and then yeah completely destroyed did you have a storm roll in or something nope it's like just the waves the typical waves crack the boat wasn't tied down properly or something well, like, like that. yeah like, you're not supposed to like beach 
uh, like a sailboat like that. Right. They're too large. And it's like, you don't want to do that. It's not a, like a smaller vessel could kind of, you can pull it and kind of get away. But um, with that large of a vessel, and especially because once you get beached, it's like now it starts to keel over. And then, and that's what happened. It got beached and then it just capsized. And once it capsized, I would say it's done. So I was like, oh, great. So yeah, awesome. How much are you out? Well, we're, we're going to be all right with insurance and everything, but um, I'm out of boat right now. So uh, that, that's, that's disappointing. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know you were a sailor, Mark. I, I just became one uh, two months ago. <laughs> <laughs> did Natalie have any background? No, no. We never gone sailing before. The first time we did go sailing was our first lesson, and that was just to do the sea trial on the boat. And then the next time we went was um, an actual lesson, which was with a, an experienced um, uh, sailor, and he was like a racing sailor. And I was like, okay, like I, I think we got um, we we got I got a handle of what's going on and what to do. And then we were supposed to sail with uh, our our trainer to Catalina, and then he had to cancel. And he's like, oh, I'm not going to be able to make it. And I'm like, well, I already like blocked out this weekend. I'm going to do it. So we grabbed the boat and we took it to Catalina and I was like, oh damn, uh, not advised. Uh, <laughs> and when we came back, he was like, you guys took it to Catalina. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, and you're not dead. And I was like, no, we're all right. And he's like, he's like, that's like not the smartest thing I've ever heard in my life. And I was like, well, I just did it. And then did it again after that. And I was like, yeah, it's not that bad. As long as you like, I told Natalie, I'm like, hey, you know what we lack in experience, we'll make up in athleticism. So just just get it done. Like whatever you got to do, whatever you got to pull, whatever you, you got to learn, just do it. And if you're athletic enough, you get away with it. That's the beauty of these times, isn't it? You can no races going on, so you can just go risk your life in other fun ways. Exactly. <laughs> Having never sailed, how yeah. did you decide to buy a boat? Um, we actually were looking into it because uh, we heard like of like different websites that offer like boats basically for free. So we were like, oh, like they have like they sell boats that are trying. People are trying to dump them off because they're they're like they're more of a liability than they are enjoyment. So um, we go we went to that website and there really wasn't anything for us because they're mostly like power boats and we wanted a sailboat and so we ended up looking on. Craigslist. And then we found this guy who was like, Hey, I do partnerships with boats and partnerships are amazing with boats because like you're, you, you have four people, uh, four, four families basically that own the boat and you're only, res you're, you're responsible or, or, or you're paying a portion of it and it's only a quarter. So everything you buy for the boat is split by four, four ways. So everything I'm buying for the boat is like 75% off. I'm like, Hey, this is pretty cool. <laughs> this isn't bad. So we like the boat was nice. By the time we got it done, I was like, Oh man, we bought like the best stuff you could possibly buy for the boat, like on every single purchase. And then, you know, it got destroyed. I was like, Oh man, that, that sucked. But you know, it's really cool because I, I talked to a lot of people that had boats and they're like, well, it's, it sucks when you're paying the entire slip fee. You know, like you, you go and you have to pay the entire slip fee. You could get you could get pricey the larger the boat. So our boat was 30, 30 feet. So wasn't that bad. It was like it, we had to pay like one hundred and fifty dollars a person, which is like, hey, that's that's manageable as opposed to owning it yourself. And now you're paying close to, you know, 
500, 600 bucks yourself. And so that's like why people don't like owning their own boat is because it gets expensive monthly and it adds up and you're like, oh man, I, I didn't even get out there this month. And then you start kicking yourself and you're like, I got to get rid of this thing. But for us, I was like, no, it was pure enjoyment the whole gosh damn time. And um, yeah, we're going to get another boat. <laughs> Pick your boat mates wisely next time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, the, this time we're not going to make that mistake. So yeah. Will you go back in with the same group? Uh, I think the, I mean, the other partners we had were great. It's just that one guy that, you know, duffed it and made a, made a huge error. What, what do you what do you want to say to this guy? Proclaim on the podcast. What do you want to say to this knucklehead? Anything? No, I'm, I mean he's he's mortified about the whole situation. <laughs> he can't believe it. I mean there hasn't been. Uh, I don't think there has been a ship like destruction like that in that in that area that marina in like three to four years. And the person who did it before him was like piss ass drunk. So mm-hmm. to do it sober. I'm like, oh man, that's uh, that's a feat. So. Well, I want to say to this gentleman that you're the reason Mark's hung over on a Tuesday morning. That's right. So, <laughs> off. Mark, we want to jump into like the meat and potatoes of this now, I suppose. All Sorry right. about your boat. Rest in peace. Um, but uh, you sent us, you know, I've heard some podcasts with you. Mm-hmm. And, and I think what sparked this conversation, which I want to get to later, but I just want to preface this is you are quite an advocate of running longer than 400 meters in your intervals. Yeah. In fact, you believe 600 meters is the sweet spot. And I know you have rhyme and reason behind that. And I want to hash that out with you later in the podcast. Cause I think, I think what you have to say about it's interesting. I I've heard you dive just like scratch the surface on another podcast. I don't recall what it was, mm-hmm. um, but that got the conversation going. And then I was thinking like, gosh, this guy during COVID, like, your son Nico is is running for the Sharks and you won an ultra virus race and had an incredible performance a few months ago and still considered one of the speedy guys who probably really finally got healthy and would have had a freaking phenomenal year in the sport. Could you have raced? And I thought it made sense to talk to you for all of those reasons. So I wanted to dive into, and I know Bracken does as well, but dive in like, I don't necessarily know your entire background. Do you, Bracken, know Mark's background? Just bits and pieces. Bits and pieces. So we, yeah, I don't know if you listen to the podcast, but we like to go back from the beginning, man, and get to know you a little bit and then bring us up to speed on what's been going on this year with you. And then maybe we can we can hash out uh, some of your training styles and methods because I think everybody wants to be as fast as Mark Botris. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like I started running when I was uh, eight years old. Um, my first race was like, like a, a, just a regular like one mile kind of race on the streets and it was in uh, East LA and I went out there and um, as an eight year old, I, I beat all the 10 year olds and I won by like a minute and a half in the mile. And that was kind of like my bug. That was it. I got bit and I was like, wow, I'm really good at this. And I, I, I can, I can do this pretty well. So um, I, I think that first race I won like 20 bucks and a, and a, the biggest trophy I've ever had to this day. <laughs> and I was like, Hey, this is pretty sweet. Like they give you a lot of stuff for running fast. Like I like this. And then after that, my dad picked up a lot of flyers of local five K's and other kids races in the area. And that was it. I started racing a lot, um, uh, doing a lot of road races. 
And then I did a race when I was like nine and a half. And it was, um, it was in, um, like in this area where there's a lot of runners. It, it, it's like, um, San Fernando Valley in, in California. And one of the coaches there saw me and he was like, Hey, I want you to run for my team. And that's when I got introduced to like, uh, like junior Olympics and all that stuff. And the first year we went out and our team won the national championship um, for, for uh Bantam division. And then that was it. I mean, we grew up, I grew up with that team together. Um, and pretty much like, like that, all, all, all of us went to high school and all, all, every single kid that was on that team, every single one of them won a state championship with another team. So it was like, we were just like, stacked up to the gills when it came to our talent so i went to bosco tech we had other guys that went to royal high school we had other guys went to canyon so like in california like we were kind of like all the kids that ran in in uh that junior olympic team like were very very talented and ended up going on and and, and going to college and still running there so yeah i went to college at cal poly pomona before we get to college uh high school track what did you win at state uh, well, I, we won um, the 1999 state championship in cross country. Wow. And then, and then um, in 98, we were runner-ups. And then in, um, I think in 2000, I believe we were like third or fourth. I think we we're fourth. And then uh, and, and <laughs> my senior year, my team didn't make it to the state championship. And it was because we moved up divisions. We went from division... Uh, three to division two. And we did, we actually did that my, my junior year. But, um, uh, when we did that, it was like, it wasn't a, it wasn't that big of a jump. Like we still had a lot of talent, but then my, my senior year, we lost a lot of talent. And then we were, it was just me and a couple of other guys. And, um, yeah, it was just stacked up. I mean, I think that year, like, you know, in order to go to, to the state championship, you had to be like, your team had to be really, really freaking good. So I was like, wow, we just missed it by like, I think like three points. So team didn't go. I went and then um, ended up getting seventh at uh, state championship. And there was a lot of good guys in that race. Uh, <laughs> like when you, when you hear the names in that race, you're like, holy hell, like <laughs> that was pretty, pretty stacked up. And I ended up getting seventh in that race. So it's pretty good considering, you know, the whole season. So, Who was in it? Uh, like one of the the best guys uh, probably in like, in, uh, California history. It was like Young Sung Liel. He was in that race. Uh, yeah, Mike Michael Haddon was in that race. He he outkicked me. <laughs> and then uh, yeah, you had a lot of really good um, other guys that like like that filled up the spots. Like the, the top ten were like every, like if you you spout out the names of the top ten, you're like oh yeah, I know like I know that guy, I know that guy. Like I've heard of that guy. It's like all those guys were just you know all of them broke nine in the two mile. All of them were just freaking talented it was just like it was crazy for a division two race like i was like oh man dude <laughs> this is gonna be tough so yeah i think it was the fastest time of the day and yeah it was it was a very very difficult race but what did you run in in cross country what was your pr uh that day i ran uh i ran a i ran slow that day but my pr on that course was a 1534 for uh 5k for uh for the state championship course which is pretty good i was like it's, it's it ranks pretty well um on the all-time list but and what about all courses how'd you do in, in cross um 
like it depends on the course. Uh, one of my favorite courses was like the Stanford course. Like that mm-hmm. one was really good, good mm-hmm. measurable course to like go off of. Um, that one I ran like uh, I think it was like 16 flat when I was a junior, and it was it was pretty good. I I think I don't remember. I was like either one second faster or one second slower than Ryan Hall that day, and I was like, whoa, I did pretty damn good. <laughs> so. That was that was a good day for me, and I, I was excited about that one. Yeah, but um, that that was a, that was a good course. Yeah, I wanna I wanna know. So as an eight year old, you it was a pretty random thing that you found your first race. I'm assuming like it happened to be down the street, and somebody got wind of it, and you decided to just show up. Like that's how that first race went for you. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then and then you were in like a developmental running program at like a young age, like pre-teenager developmental running program. I didn't even know those were a thing. I didn't have access to anything like that. Did you, Bracken? Yeah, they had track clubs in this area. They did. Uh, I, maybe. It was all, it was based around sprinting though in Wisconsin, especially in the Milwaukee County area. It was all sprinting, jumping. Okay. Uh, the, the track clubs for distance didn't really do much. You were sent out to run. I guess Green Bay, Wisconsin, where I grew up, wasn't quite a distance running mecca like <laughs> the LA area. So maybe I just didn't know that was possible. So you started because I, I think this just quick debate is worth getting into. Like some would say training at that young of an age is maybe not like super smart or detrimental potentially to like to just development as like a young human. Um, were you guys training pretty hard? Like is this like you have been training with purpose, with intent, doing specific type work? since you were like 10 yeah pretty much yeah. interval work tempo work hill work like you have been training since then yeah that's wild to me i don't know why that's just what that's just wild to me because i was just running around in the backyard shooting hoops and playing in my sandbox like i wasn't running intervals or shit like that yeah yeah because like uh my coach uh when i was a kid um he was like he had qualified i think for the um olympic trials like in like i think like this like 80s or something like that and we were running with him and um he, he mostly put his focus on like distance longer intervals and stuff like that so i mean I, we didn't do a lot of distance work we mostly did intervals so it was like mostly speed work and then if i did any run it would be like three miles and then like the stuff my son was doing like at, at 100 miles and like for the whole month and everything um, I would not advise parents to do that. <laughs> that was just a one month of like, how much can he physically do and not hurt himself and, or be in a detriment for his training later on. So everything I've, I've done with him has been with purpose. And it's like, it's not, it, I, I'm not putting in huge miles on him and I'm trying not to give him like, um, I'm trying to give him the same experience that I had, but even better. So it's like his stuff is all like sprint work and all everything that's related to like, like getting faster, not distance at all. Until the hundred mile week month. How did that come about? Well, he wanted to do something uh, for sharks for his birthday. And, you know, explain sharks to people. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like um, he, he loves sharks. So he's been um, studying sharks and everything related to their, um, behaviors and and how how they interact with people and he he reads books about sharks and he's really interested in marine life so um 
you know, we had just recently come up from Florida uh, a vacation and um, we, we were swimming with sharks. And then we watched a documentary explaining that um, right now is like there's a lot of sharks being killed. And um, if we're like uh, like fishing and all that kind of stuff in um, in, in uh, uh, the Pacific Sea. So he wanted to raise money for shark conservation. And we were like, well, it's your birthday month. It's the month of, you know, uh, Shark Week. And everyone's thinking about sharks right now. So let's, um, you know, if you want to like do a fundraiser or something like that, like we can do something like that and you can run for sharks. And he was like, uh, my wife was like, yeah, you can run like 50 miles in the month. And he's like, 50, I want to do a hundred. And we're like, <laughs> okay. Like, and then Natalie comes to me with the idea and she's like, Hey, do you think Marky can run a hundred miles in a month? And I'm like, I don't, I, I physically, yes, but you know, we gotta really, we gotta be really careful about this because I don't want to mess him up for later on in life. And, um, like do distance as a detriment to his speed. So really calculated and saying like, okay, he could do it, but he's, he's got to do it in this manner. And he's got to like, we got to fluctuate his mileage and make sure he's, he's healthy. And then if we, he's able to do it, then this is how it's going to be done. And like he, he had like some soreness pretty bad towards the end. And I was like, Oh, I don't know if he's going to make it. And then um, he popped out of it and, and his last run was his best run. So got it done. And how old is he? He is eight years old. That's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Um, how much money did he end up raising? He raised uh, two thousand six hundred dollars. So, that's yeah, yeah, I was, I was really impressed, and I was proud of him and everything. He did really good, and it was actually a very difficult challenge for him. And I know how difficult it is because I was his age before, and like running that many miles, I was like, oh wow, like that's a big difference. Um, uh, to do like when you do five miles now as an adult, it's, it's not that bad. It's like mentally you're able to do it and you're able to get it done. But as a kid, it's like an eternity. It takes forever to do five miles. I've done it before. And I was like, I remember doing that one five mile run when I was like 11 years old. And I told my dad, I'm like, I'm never running that far ever again. Like, don't, don't tell me to run five miles. I'm never going to do it. Like just, we're just doing three. That's it. I'll do three. I'm not doing five. Like, and that was it. I never, I never did five again. Like when I was a kid, I only did three miles. And only when I did interval work, did I ever go to like five miles or six miles. So yeah. Um, I remember that. And going into my freshman year of high school, uh, the Nike zoom waffle, uh, the Nike waffle racer for cross country came out. And it was so pretty. I'd never seen anything like it. And I really wanted it, but I was broke. And my dad said, I'll tell you what, uh, our high school had like the 150 mile club, the 200 mile club, whatever for the summer volume leading up. And he said, if you hit whatever volume it was for the last two months, like 150 miles for the last two months of summer, I would get the shoes. And so each morning I'd try to go out and run. And there was a high school that was three miles away from me. If I could just make it there and back, I'd get six that day. I don't think I ever made it there. It'd be hot. I'd be tired. And I'd turn around at two or two and a half. And when you're young and you're not used to running that you're right. It just mentally takes so much effort to keep moving for a half hour or 40 minutes. Yeah. It was tough on him. Like the first time we did five miles, he was like, Oh my God, that was impossible. The next time we did five miles, he was like, Oh, like he got used to it. And then his, like his mental 
like we we just kept talking about uh, Roblox and then <laughs> talking about his games and all that stuff, and he was entertained the whole entire time. So it was like having to convince him that it's not going to kill him and that he's actually going to be able to finish it was really um, that was the, the hardest part. But uh, he got it done. Yeah, it was. I think. I think pacing at that age too, like everybody goes out just a little hotter than they should. And then it always makes for a long run. Um, I was curious about it because your sons, um, are they twins? Uh, no. They're not twins, right? No, but they both have a form of albinoism, right? Yeah. yeah. Both your kids. Is that genetically running your family or is that just random chance that? It, it's like uh, Natalie has a recessive gene. I have the recessive gene. And then the fact that we got together and we have a 25% chance every time we have kids to have a kid with albinism. So that's kind of like what it is. But um, yeah, for us to like, in terms of like us getting together, the odds are one in 250,000. So it's like that, that us being together is a hundred and, uh, 250,000, one in 250,000. And then, um, then you have one in, you have a quarter chance of actually having kids with albinism and we have two of them. So <laughs> it was like, oh man, it's, uh, it compounded on the statistics. That's for sure. <laughs> Does that make running tricky? Um, no. In terms of um, layering or sunscreen or when he can get out and run. Yeah. Like his, he, he's not that sensitive to sun. But he is like we need to load him up like with sunscreen. Um, he does have sensitivity to light. So mm-hmm. ideally, we try to get out early. Um, so I would run with him first. And then after that, then go do my run. But there were some times where I would do my run because he wasn't awake. And then I would go run with him. So it was um, it was pretty tough. But yeah, the sunlight is like it's like how, how sensitive we are to sunlight. It's like his is like 10 times more sensitive to sunlight like so, his eyes like his eyes his eyes yeah. so it's like essentially like if like when you're when you're looking down and like you the, the sun's beating down on top of you you can still go forward towards the sun he can't even do that because it'll give him a headache so like there was runs where he was just like i can't i can't go in this direction i i feel like i'm blind and then i'm like okay we gotta we gotta switch up the direction so <laughs> when we go north south it's like oh man it's uh, uh straight uphill and he was like oh he started climbing and he was like oh man like we got to get out earlier <laughs> so yeah he didn't like climbing too much but uh he got it done yeah wow um yeah. is there any and then my last curiosity with that because i just don't know much about it um and i didn't know it was such a like in the reason i thought they were they were twins is because i couldn't imagine you'd have two children with albinism so i get how the odds are stacked against you are there any other like really like obvious health effects to having that other than you know just the things you'd mentioned uh no i mean those are the those are the major things it's it, a lot has to do with eyesight they they they, they mostly refer to it as uh occlutaneous albinism and uh it, it has mostly to do with their eyes that that's that's the major detriment with um you know with with their albinism so uh yeah they have like i think nico has like um psycho cycles oh man i can't even say it cycles like basically his eyes they like whenever he's like reading or something they'll invert like that so like when he's trying to read something sometimes he turns the book sideways because 
his eyes will automatically start to, because he's focusing on something, they will mm -hmm. do like a 180. And now he's got this like whole like contortion of his eyes. And it's like, oh man, in order to correct it, um, they can't they can't do surgery on it because it's so sensitive that uh, if they try to correct it, it might not work. And then it might worsen his condition. So I'm like, yeah, it's it's really difficult for for both of them um, to read and and to do different um, like normal things uh, related to like your eyesight. Yeah. Mm. All right, I was I was just curious about that. Um, seems like you guys are doing a good job with those kids. Um, let's get back to you. So I think we 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 wanted to hear more about when you were young, Brack, and you want to jump to uh, college days and. Well, first, forth? you know I'm a numbers guy. Did you run track as well? Uh, yeah, yeah, I ran track. Um, were you better at track or cross country? What'd you enjoy more? I enjoyed cross country more. Yeah. Um, track was just kind of like a uh, just got got to get through it. Uh, ran the mile and the two mile. Uh, the mile I was a um, I ran a four twenty, um, and then the two mile I ran a nine oh seven. So Ooh, that's that, real quick. That's good. That that was a that was a good time. Yeah, that's more impressive than the four twenty. Not that four twenty is not impressive, but yeah, yeah, legit. You know, the four twenty was like I I got pissed off because I tried to run my best time at uh, the the um uh league finals because i knew after league finals like we, i wouldn't be running any more miles after that so i took out and it was like 15 mile per hour headwinds like the whole damn time so i was trying to run a pr in the worst conditions every single time before that was like it was raining and i was like dude like i never got an opportunity to run a good mile i i'm pretty sure i could could have got down to like a four like maybe 16 416 but yeah, I was like, I, I ran a 420 and I was like, ah, it is what it is. But I wasn't, uh, yeah, I, I wasn't uh, happy with my mile time. My two mile was really good though. 907 was solid. I was, I was happy about that. It was like, at the time I was like ranked like 20th in the country. So not too bad. It's a tricky part about a high school track with being a spring sport is you're at the mercy of the weather. Yeah. yeah. To put your mile, two mile combination in perspective, I ran 426 as my PR in high school. And I ran 952 in the two mile. So I was six seconds slower in the mile and like 45 seconds slower in the two mile. So that yeah. two mile was real, real good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was actually pretty, I, I knew I was good at the two mile, like right off the bat. Cause like my freshman year, I ran a 943 and like, that was like, that was, that race was like my breakout race where everybody like at, like my coach and everybody else started to realize like, Oh shit. Like, I can, I can roll, like I can run with the big boys and I can, I can actually do this and I could probably be a really good like runner towards uh, my senior year. So that was a really, like a huge breakthrough for me. Did that 907 get you any looks from college? Yeah. I mean, I, that was like, uh, essentially like uh, I, 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 like when I went to college, I kind of found out like the secrets of college, which is like coaches can't just give everybody a scholarship. You know what I mean? It's like, you have to hit like for track. It's great because there is a marker and coaches like that marker changes with time and, you know, with, um, you know, how people perform. But for the most part, like if you're a kid in high school, um, like the marker is a, a nine, 10 mile, uh, two mile. So if you hit a nine, 10, two mile, now coaches can actually give you stuff. If you're in, in the mile, it's like, you got to hit, uh, I believe it was like a four, 14 
and now coaches can give you stuff. So it was like, these are pretty set, like, like the, the, um, the, uh, coaching department, the, you know, the athletic department and the coach kind of like they derive what these markers are going to be for all events and they set them and that's it. You got to hit them as a, um, as, as a, as an athlete. But if you hit these times, like pretty much they can open the, open the floodgates for you and, uh, you know, promise you the world. So it's pretty sweet. <laughs> so like I, I, I learned that as I was working with my, my coach in, in college, kind of what those times were, how they kind of uh, figure those times out and um, you know, what they could offer for different kids. Cause like, I was like, Oh, like I was always trying to get different kids to go to our, our, um, our university. But I knew like, like basically like we couldn't, we couldn't offer those kids any scholarship or anything cause they didn't hit the times. So it was like, Hey man, like I know you're my friend and you, you want to come on down, but it's not, uh, it's not free. <laughs> you got to pay. <laughs> so kind of one of those things. Where did you wind up? What university I wound, I wound up at uh, Cal Poly Pomona. Yeah. And it was weird because like I, I know like I had a lot of looks from bigger colleges um, and, <laughs> yeah, it, you know, hey, do good in school, kids, because <laughs> like <laughs> your grades can hold you back <laughs> if even if you're athletic. Um, I, I got a letter from Yale. Uh, that was the weirdest letter I've ever seen in my life and from college recruiters. And it said, like, um, if you get a twelve hundred on the SAT, you get a free ride. That was it. That was the whole, that was the extent of the letter that was high on the coach. You get a 1200 SAT, you get a free ride. That's it. And I was like, oh my God. And the best I can do was a, uh, uh, a thousand on the SAT. So <laughs> couldn't, uh, couldn't put it together. Uh, my grades were like, um, I went to a really, really good high school. And I think that was my major deficit in, in terms of like how, how I performed in my grades. So like my, uh, my GPA was like a 2.8. So wasn't really anything impressive, but um, like when I went to college, I thought college was so much easier than my high school. Really? So I, I, yeah, I ended up with a uh, 3.49 GPA. So that was like, like high, like high school was so difficult because of the competition that we had. And you went to a tech high school, right? Yeah. Yeah. I went to a high school that had like essentially like um, that we had engineering like schools um, that, that were, were within the actual high school. So it's like you have a technology and the technology like it could have been like, you know, mine was uh, manufacturing, which was like working with lathes, mills, um, uh, CNC machines and stuff like that. Uh, the other other uh, colleges were like um, civil engineering uh, material science, um, electrical engineering, design, uh, AutoCAD, stuff like that. And then, um, and computer science. So like pretty much when we graduated from high school, we already had like, um, AS degrees, um, equivalencies, uh, like in engineering. So it was, uh, it was pretty intense. Yeah. <laughs> so like, yeah, I was like, oh man, it was, uh, it was tough, but, uh, I did. That's pretty- a, yeah. That's a young age to commit to a certain type of school, like in high school to go to like an engineering high school before you really have any idea what you want to do with your life. That's that's kind of a commitment, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I, I mean, we had automotive, too. And like a lot of people chose automotive and it was like, oh, like 
you messed up because you wasted time doing something you could have done like on the weekend. Cause like, like, I, I, like because we were such a huge emphasis, like school emphasized in, in engineering, everybody had like old school cars. Like everybody had like, like my, I had a 1964 um, uh, Valiant and, and, and I had a 1963 Polara. So Dodge Polara. So it was like, we we all fixed up older cars so we were all breaking down cars on the weekends and then we we're like building them up and then we'd show up and we'd be like hey like check it out like put new put new heads on like check you know check out this thing so it was all like we you know we all like try to one up each other like on how the cars were and stuff like that but yeah it was it was pretty fun but yeah <laughs> So that transition from senior of high school, being a stud, you know, being, being your local legend and then moving up to college, that's rough for a lot of people, but you went to a smaller college. Yeah. So what was your transition like both from a training volume and intensity standpoint, and then from a going from being the senior to a low man on the totem pole? All right. So when I went from high school to college, when I got to college, I was, um, I had already been running a hundred miles a week in high school. Um, like, like I, like, like I said, like I was already in the competition of my peers, which for me were the guys that were already running nine flat, nine Oh three, nine, like sub nine in the two mile that I used to run with when I was a kid. And it was like, I, I, I wish I never would have got into it, but we were all running, like we were all reading like, uh, the, uh, the blog pages and stuff like that at the time. And it was like, um, I, I forgot what it was called. It, I think they call it like dice Stat, like dice Stat Cal or whatever. And it, it was like, mm. it was, it, it was right when that started to become a big thing. And it's like, Oh yeah. Rumor has it that so-and-so is running a hundred miles a week. And I was like, well, no one's going to outwork me. So <laughs> I went out and did a hundred miles a week. And then, um, when I got to college, um, I didn't want to get too crazy too quick. So I, think I bumped my mileage down to like 95 miles a week, but it was still really high. Um, considering like most kids coming from college, going uh, kids coming from high school, going to college, usually go to like maybe like 80 or 90 miles. Like I was already at, a, at 95 to a hundred. So um, to me, I was like, Oh, I'm going to keep working this hard. And, and when I got to college, I think the thing that I implemented more was the weekend runs. So like in high school, I wasn't doing weekend runs that often. I would do maybe a Saturday run, but not a Sunday run. You're hitting a hundred miles on six days. Pretty much. Yeah. Whew. So that was, the, that was like, that was the tough part of my schedule in high school. And my senior year, I thought I could have ran faster, but I was, my body was so broken down by running a hundred miles a week um, as a kid. So like I, I couldn't recover in time for that amount of volume. So, uh, that's, that's when I started, like, I, the reason why I ran the 907 was cause I got injured. I, I, I twisted my ankle and it was a bad twist where it was like swollen, like a freaking softball. And then I ended up running, I raced right after that healed. And that's when I ran the 907. So I actually got healed up and I got rest because I was running hundred miles a week. I got rest and I actually ran the 907. And that's when I stopped running a hundred miles a week because I was like, Oh, I, I think I was just running myself into the ground. So kind of helped me out that I got injured. So, yeah. And then when I went to college, 
I mean, running a hundred miles a week, it's like, Oh yeah, you just burn right through it. It's all good. So <laughs> it's, uh, you know, when I went to college, I was like, Oh, you guys are running pretty easy. I, the training actually was a lot easier than I had in high school. My high school training was like intense. It was, it was, it was, it was really tough. And when I went to college, I was like, Oh man, we're really backing off here. Like, when are we going to like put on the burners? So I think my freshman year, um, I mean, it's a, as good as transition as you can run. I, I ran a 24.52 for the for for an AK. So that was I, I won I won the conference as, as a as a freshman. So there was no low man totem pull for me. I was, <laughs> I was already at the top. I was like, there's nowhere to go from here. I'm already I'm already beating everybody in in the in the conference. So. I I think though, that's, that's what woke up kind of um, the Chico program because they had been really successful and um, they, they were in our conference. And um, when I started, when I beat everybody at that conference race, they were like, holy hell, like, you know, we got to wake up and step it up or else this freaking freshman is going to freaking beat us all the time. Like, this is ridiculous. So a lot of their seniors and uh, juniors and seniors started to wake up and say, Hey, we got to, we got to go to work and beat this kid from freaking uh, Cal Poly. And um, that's when we started going back and forth with them. And it was, it was fun. Like uh, college is a lot of fun. How much did you, how much did you improve in college then as far as times go? Is that where you were going with that bracket? Exact same thing. Yeah. Uh, You're smirking. So where did you end up when, when it was all wrapped up four years of college track cross country, did you get that much better or did, did the mileage, um, I don't know, like you, you stagnated because you hit such high mileage at a young age. Yeah, I kind of, I stagnated probably my senior year because my junior year was like freaking awesome. I, I, I'm, I always look back at my junior year and I get pissed off because I'm like, damn it, man, I should have gotten way better than, I think I got like 20, 20 something, like it, I, I got like 28th at um, uh, cross country nationals. And I was so pissed because I was in such good shape. Like my freaking mile repeats were like insane, insane. I was like, Oh my God. Like I did one workout. My first mile repeat was like four forty, And then I went four thirty five, and then I went four thirty, and then I went four twenty four, And then I finished with a four twenty mile. And I was like, that, that workout was like incredible. I was like, dude, I am fit as a fiddle. There's nobody that could beat me. But the thing is, I, I realized that was the first iteration of when I go into a race too confident, I end up running worse because I'm overconfident in my abilities. And then I end up running like, I don't know why, but I run stupid when I am in really good shape. And like it, it's kind of plagued me for a while. <laughs> and yeah, so like I think my, uh, my AK at that time was like 24 flat. And, um, you know, my 10 K times were like, they were, they were rolling on, um, in, in cross country races. I was running like 30 flat for 10 K and, uh, like a little bit. Yeah. So like, yeah, it was like, uh, I, I got pretty fast, but, um, I did te- I, I did kind of teeter out at that point because my senior year, I didn't run that fast. I didn't have cl- workouts close to that fast. So, um, a lot had to do with me getting sick too. I got mononucleosis, um, when I was in college at that time. And that's, I think that's the reason why like Jim Ryan retired. Um, and it's like, it, it's a, it's a, it's a sickness that doesn't 
doesn't bode well for uh, performance athletes. <laughs> so uh, it could it could really put you at a detriment. Yeah. So that's what happened to me my senior year. But I kept fighting through it and then ended up running faster later on. Um, so like when I finished my my senior year, I had a I think a 29, 29.49 10K. I had a 14.28 5K. My steeplechase was a 9, 9.03. And my mile was a uh, 4, 4.12. So got a little faster, but mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> so then you graduated and did you hit the doldrums or did you keep running? I, I got into uh, like road racing, got into marathoning, uh, started going after the, uh, the, the Olympic trials standard. Um, I, I, I ended up with a uh, 219, uh, which would have qualified me in 2008, but uh, not 2012. So it was like, yeah, you got a 219 and change, not good enough for 2012. Um, and I did it right outside. I did it outside of the window. So I did it right. I did it in 2008 in December, right after the trials. <laughs> so I tried to do it before the trials, but there was like a heat wave that was going on in um, Chicago. And it was like, I think it was, uh, it was 96 degrees with 98% humidity. And people were dropping like flies. It was crazy. And I ended up running, I ended up dropping out because I was like, Oh, this is stupid. I, I, I'm not even close to the time. And I got to mile 20 and I was like, well, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna go. I'm walking off the course now because I'm going to end up running like a 225, and that's not what I came to do. So I was done. And then, um, I ended up, uh, running in December. So from October, going and running in December. And that's when I hit the 219. That's when I hit my PR basically. Yeah. And that cycle they changed to 219 flat was the standard, right? Yeah. It was a sub 219. And yeah, I wasn't able to get, I wasn't able to get a good race going. I mean, the marathon has so many variables and it's like, I tell people like when you run a sprint race, there's not very much variation in your time. You shouldn't have, a huge fluctuation. It should be pretty consistent. So as you get longer in distance, that fluctuation in performance is going to widen. So mm-hmm. like, like pretty much like when you do a 5k, your, your variability should be only like maybe 20 seconds, 20 to 30 seconds tops. That's if you get in a good race, you get in a bad race, you have good conditions or bad conditions. That's your variability. It's about 20 to 30 seconds. When you get to a marathon, that variability opens up to like five to six minutes. And it's like, Oh man, (laughs) like Mm -hmm. good conditions, bad conditions. It makes a big difference. So um, yeah, like a lot of, a lot of my problems were in, in that, in that scenario where it's like, Oh, you just had a bad conditions, bad things happened. And you know, the weather wasn't good. And now you're in a situation where you're running, you know, I ran a a ton of two twenties, like, a slew of 220s, 222s. I, I ran a race where I took out in a 106 for the first half. Then I had this huge blister on the bottom of my foot. And I was like, oh my God, like it's like my whole freaking forefoot is like a huge callous blister and ended up still running a 225. And I was like, dude, it's just stuff like that was just like it kept continued to plague me like throughout my whole marathoning career. And then 
I started noticing something, which was like, everybody started getting stupid fast, stupid fast. So when I was running marathons, the winner would run like a, the winner would win in like a 208 or 207 or something like that. And then all of a sudden, like these guys started running, like, like all these guys started running like, you know, two, 205, 204. And I was like, what the hell's happening? Like, I'm still improving and I'm getting better, but these guys are running ridiculous times now. Like I, I can't even, like, I couldn't even fathom how they were even going into that realm when these were guys I was racing that were like doing two tens. And now all of a sudden they're at like two Oh fives, two Oh fours. And I'm like, what the hell's going on? Like, this doesn't make any sense to me. And it like, I had a friend kind of explain to me and, and he's kind of like, we always bounce, bounce ideas off each other. And we were like training partners ever since I was in like in sixth grade. And he was like, Hey, like, think about, think about this event. Think about marathon. Like what are some of the cues, like, like some of the key words you think about when you think about marathoning. And I was like daunting, difficult, like, you know, competitions high, like, like all, all the words that I gave him were negative. Every single word that I gave him and explained to him was a negative word. And he was like, look at, look at all the negativity that you're, you're displaying. Like you will not be successful in this sport if you have this negative mentality while you're training, while you're thinking about it. You think it's impossible. You think it's, you think it's daunting. You think it's like, like it's not even fun anymore. And he's like, do you want to do this? Like, for the rest of your life? Like, how do, how do you want to, like, how do you want to live? Do you want to have like this, this, um, this, like all these negative connotations with your training? And I was like, Oh shit, like I got to change it up. And that's when I started doing Spartan racing because I was like, I, I can't, I can't live like this anymore. I, I don't, I don't like my training. I don't like the competition that I'm going up against. Like it's not, it's not conducive for um, like getting me to the next level of fitness. So I need to change something up. How long did you pursue the marathon? Um, I did it from, well, I graduated in 2007, 8, 9, 10, like about five years. I did okay. it for like five years. Yeah. And then like, it, it was, it was getting pretty bad because like I got up to like 140 miles a week. Um, I, I, I would have that, um, that uh, I started developing that, that, that condition where your muscles start to eat themselves for energy. <laughs> like you start eating muscle for energy. And then you smell like pneumonia. Um, I had that and it was like, it, it was horrible. I was like, I, I'm not, not living my best life right now. <laughs> mm. So, uh, pretty much when you start running that much miles, your testosterone goes way down, like so, so low. Um, I think it's probably the main reason why me and Natalie couldn't have, we weren't having any babies at the time. <laughs> like mm. we were trying the whole entire time. I, I think right from the moment I graduated, um, we were trying to have kids and we, we just couldn't. And then, um, I, all of a sudden I got injured. Um, I tore my meniscus. I couldn't train for a good seven months. And that's when, that's when, uh, Marky was born. So it was like that, that, that's what it took for me to kind of, um, you know, pump the brakes and kind of get my hormones and everything back in check. It took about seven months for that to just get everything in line. That's crazy. And it's, it's tricky when you, when you get to a performance plateau and you know that 
the standard recipe to break through that is you got to increase something and then it yeah. becomes volume. And when you're in the marathon world, volume is holy. And if mm-hmm. 100 didn't work, 120 has got to work. And if 120 doesn't work, 140 is going to work. And right. there are success stories of people that hit 130, 140 miles per week, but it's a, it's a slippery slope. Yeah. And, and if you notice them, like they can't sustain that for very long. And that's why, like, typically, like when you look at the trajectory of ru- like runners that, that do the marathon in history, they usually last only like two years and they have two years of high performance. And then after that, it is done. Like their bodies are wrecked. And they can no longer sustain that much volume or training, um, like stimulus, like it's done. So it's either one, you have to change what you're doing and and go to a different stimulus or different race, or, you know, that that's pretty much it. You're done. Like you're not, you're not doing marathoning anymore. But once you're, once you're tapped, I mean, and when you start affecting hormone levels, and I bet you, if you checked like your adrenal glands, your thyroid, all your testosterone levels, your iron levels were probably in the dirt because you were just burning the candle at all ends. And it seems like a lot of times you see people improve once it, once they back off, just like you did. You see that the opposite happen all the time. I feel like yeah. Let that training sink in. Let your cellular energy come back. Um, sounds like you felt a little better then too, huh? Oh yeah, I felt like a million times better. And then when I started coming back, I was like, okay, now I feel healthy and I'm ready to train. And then going into Spartan racing, really like, like it, it, it revived my energy for training. It like, it it got me in a a place where I'm like, I was excited to get out the door. I was excited to go to competitions to race, you know, very good um, uh, athletes. And I was like, oh man, this is fun again. And I'm having fun again. And that's, that's when I, I started, um, you know, my whole mentality changed. So you can, you can see why, not that it's okay or right, but logically it starts to make sense why doping happens at high levels, because if you can now supplement with testosterone and with thyroid medication and with, you know, red blood cell doping, whether it's EPO or actually blood transfusions, you can see why, okay, I can still do all that stuff that I want to do physically and mentally, but now I can balance it out chemically so I don't have to tear my meniscus and take seven months off in order to get my body back to normal levels. We can just, we can inject, we can take some cream or we can take it pill form and now we move forward. So again, nowhere even close to justifying it, but logically it makes sense why it's such a problem in endurance sports is because what we are doing to our bodies breaks it down. And if you can slap a bandaid on that, you don't have to stop breaking it down. Right. You can continue to go and, you know, burn the candle. And that's why, like, I noticed when I was running marathons, like the time started getting so much faster and all these things. And I'm like, you know, this is getting weird. Like I, I, I was like, I would go into marathons and the winner would run like 210. And that's when I got into marathoning. I was like, okay, 210, 208, maybe 208. And you're talking about a major marathon that's wanted with a 208. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, when I was getting into big marathons, it was like, no, you got to run 204, 203. And I was like, when did the hell, like, what, like nothing's changed. I'm reading all these, like all these guys training schedules and all their training um, acumen and, and all their, their stimulus. And I'm like, they have not changed a damn thing. They're still doing the same shit that I'm doing. We're still doing the same training. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? Like, how are you guys improving so damn much? And 
that's when I started realizing I was like, okay, I started, I started looking at um, one of the runners that, that set, set the world record and he got popped for EPO. And it was like, he was, that's how he ran a 205. And I was like, okay, so he was on EPO in order to run a 205. And then now all these guys are well under 205, but they're all clean. And I'm like, wait a minute, this guy was on EPO to run a 205. And now all these other guys are clean all of a sudden. And, and like, oh, how are we accepting this? Like, this doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. So it's like, to me, anybody under a 205 is unnatural. Like, it's just unnatural. You can't do it. Like, it, it's just physically impossible to train that hard, to have your body hurt that much through training and to run a sub 205. I don't think a sub 205 is possible natural. Um, I, I, I think maybe, maybe Ryan Hall did it when he, when he ran at, um, at, in, in Boston. Um, but, and he had, he had a, a tailwind on him, but other than that, I'm like, I don't, I don't see anybody under 205 being natural. It just doesn't make any sense. Like, I think it's tough to put a number on it. It is I tough. Agree, I agree with what you're saying because the, the leaps and bounds are unnatural. Part of it yeah. can be explained by road running's back in prominence and there's prize money and people are coming to the roads younger and thus yes, faster. That's a, big, so, that's a big component. That's a big component. But I do believe I do believe that a vast majority of high-level pro athletes are cheating in some form. But yeah. it's tricky when we put a number or a name like Ryan Hall might, well, does that make him the most talented runner in history? You know, I, I – like, yeah, because like I look at like all the Americans, like in and like all, all like some of the European guys and all these other guys, and I'm like, dude, you got a lot of good talent out there, and you know some of the best times they can muster up is like a two o like two o sevens or two o two o eights. I mean, I look at Dathan Ritzenheim, and I'm like, that guy was a beast, and he ran a twelve fifty two in a, in the freaking five k, and his body is more conducive for the marathon. He knows that he's more talented in the marathon than any other event. And he couldn't even get close to a two Oh five. And yeah. I'm like, what the hell? Like that you're, you're telling me that you all of a sudden, when you go to marathon, you're, you're exponentially better at this event when you ran almost close to the same time in the 5k. Like that doesn't make any sense. Like that, that it's it, it just like, I can understand the training's getting better. Um, and, and, and the improvements on training are getting better. My knowledge has, has gotten more uh, extensive during that time frame. But is it going to make me run a two, 202 or 203 marathon? Hell no. It's just not going right. to happen. Yeah. And even if something with a lot of talent, it's really that's, – that's hard for me to believe. It's just yeah. – because I've been in that world and I've done that training and I've been in there. And I'm like, that's just not natural. Well, on the men and women's side of the last four, of the last uh, three years of world marathon majors, so six winners, three men, three women, I think it's something like four have been disqualified now retroactively. So yeah. clearly it's a problem. Um, yeah. I, I don't, I don't know what that number is. We can't hit, but it's certainly, um, but more people are cheating at that level than aren't. Yeah. Which is unfortunate. Yeah. Which is unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of money into it. That's why it's it's so prevalent. And it's like, you know, it, it gives people the opportunity to um, make that money. And if there's an opportunity to make that money, they're going to do it. And like I said, with with um, with sponsors and stuff like that, it is it, it's like a, it's the same thing with 
with the sponsors as it was with colleges. It's like, if you hit this time, you get this money. Mm-hmm. And for certain countries, that money is a lot of money. Exactly. For our country, it is not. And that's that's the unfortunate part. So you got a lot of guys that are getting like $20,000 contracts, um, you know, in third world countries. That's That's a big deal. In our country, it's not a big deal. But because there's so many athletes that have that time, that's what the price is now. So yeah. it's like, oh yeah, that, that's, that's what you're worth. We have, we have a whole camp that can do what you can do as a runner. We have a whole camp. Like we have 30, 40 guys that can run 13, 20 in the 5k. So you got one guy that does it in America. It's like, oh no, here's a $20,000 contract. That's the going rate. Sorry, buddy. It's like, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's tricky because morals don't apply across the board at the same level. If right. you if you dope in our country with our opportunities, you're doing it selfishly, right? Because you can make your same living but better doing a normal job. We have access to jobs, even though we have right. a huge unemployment rate. Anyone can decide to go out and get a factory job or a fast food job whenever they want, and they're going to make as much or more than most pro runners in our country. But in yeah. a different country, if a world championship medal means you now get to provide electricity or running water for your village for the next 10 years, then that's not really even a moral question. Of course you would right. do that. If you had the opportunity to change your children's trajectory from poverty to health, you would do that. Yeah. But then there's that trickle-down effect where if the only way to compete with those athletes is to do it. Now, now it's, you have to make your own moral compass decision. And unfortunately we've shown over and over that we fail at that. Watching the Lance Armstrong at 30 for 30, 30, uh, the last two weekends when I'm doing my long efforts, the thing that these, all these ex bikers keep saying over and over is you get to the point and you're presented with this decision. Do I want to cycle at the world level or do I want to be a clean athlete? And they all knew that was the choice to make. And I hope running's not at that point, but cycling was and we're somewhere in that world and that's depressing to think about yeah like i i noticed the trends like if you look at the times the trends and what we what we're doing it's like i i was kind of telling natalie because we watched like, like some kind of lance armstrong thing the other like yesterday and i was telling her i was like um like if you notice the times were reasonable until we got to uh the like we started instituting the um the passport when we started instituting the passport, all of a sudden the times fell off a cliff. Like, like, uh, like we started instituting the passport and then the times, like they leveled off. It's like, we weren't improving at all. It was like, we went down. And the biological all- passport for people listening that aren't aware of it is a testing protocol that as soon as you make it onto the radar, you have to get your baseline biological tests which they find out what your your hemoglobin numbers are, you know, your red blood cell to white blood cell relationship, all that stuff, your testosterone levels, all these things. And then they give you a range. They have consulted experts um, throughout different fields to find out what is a normal range that you can now fall in. If this is your baseline range, how high and low can you go? And they give you a range to be, with, which would be a normal protocol. If you test outside of that, now you are flagged for suspicion and you can be popped for doping, not by testing positive, but by testing outside of your established limits. So it's called the biological passport. It's a great program because it makes it harder to cheat. However, it has its own flaws, which are if you're already cheating when you get there, your numbers are now based off your cheating numbers. And 
it gives you a range to microdose within. So people yeah. can make the decision, all right, if uh, if my hemoglobin, if I can't get above a 48 here, I can sit at 46, even if naturally I'm a 39. So it's we're just throwing numbers around, but that, that's what the biological passport is. Yeah. So I noticed when it came out, a lot of runners retired, a lot of runners stopped racing, and then other runners' performances went down the shitter. And I was like, wow, that, that was interesting. And then when all of a sudden, a few years later, now the performances start to pick up. And I think that's when microdosing is becoming prevalent in our sport. Um, when when they go into um, you know facilities and they, they raid camps and they see vials and they see athletes there, they see the vials and they say, okay, they're definitely they're definitely using. And then you go and you test the athletes and none of them pop for anything because they're all microdosing at the perfect level. Like how, how can you, like, it, it's like, this is ridiculous. They're, they're getting to a point now where they're getting very sophisticated in their, in their, um, in their administration of EPO and testosterone. And I think it, they're probably using like a mixture so they can max out both their values. Yeah. But yeah, it's, uh, it is what it is. <laughs> Do you think, um, as far as improvement, let's talk like, um, like usage aside, because you were a higher mileage athlete from such a young age, I mean, do you think that had any detriment to seeing the exponential improvement you wanted to see as like a mid-20s athlete, whereas some of those athletes who were improving started a little slower and, you know, more of a gradual curve into their mileage versus yeah. what you had done? I, I just could see that playing in a little bit too because you came out of the gates so hot that then you had to work that much harder to make incremental gains. Yeah. Like I think honestly, like it comes down to um, it's just you're like, when you're looking at it uh, from an athlete's perspective, you kind of say like, what's everybody else doing? What, 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 what are, what are other people doing? What, what kind of training are they doing? How, well, how can I get to that level? And honestly, like when I looked at it and I'm looking at it now from my perspective now with more knowledge and I look back and I was like, wow, what a mistake. Like, Running 100 miles does not guarantee performance. That is not guarantee performance. Yet there's a bunch of coaches that live under this assumption that it does. And it has to do with the fact that you want to build out your aerobic base and you want to you want to maximize your aerobic capacity. The thing is, though, when you get to 100 miles, like you have a higher chance of injuries than you do uh, in completing the whole entire program. So when I look at it now, I'm like, well, what's going to give you a great amount of aerobic capacity, but not put you at risk for injury. That's more important than or just burning out. Yeah. It's like, so like what I, what I say is like, when you start to increase your aerobic capacity, you get this like nice little bump in your performance because your aerobic capacity is going up. But then once you get towards like, I, I would say like 80 miles, it starts to level off you don't really increase that much aerobic capacity beyond 80 miles. So in other words, like you can go up to a hundred and fill it, fill it, fill your tank up at a hundred percent. But then at that point, that that's all you're going to get. There's not, there's no gain beyond that. So when I'm at 80 miles, I might be at 98% of my aerobic capacity being filled up, but I'm not going to get injured. Like I'm going to have less, or less chance for injury 
Because when I was at 100 miles, man, injuries popped up left and right. It was like, you can go for a good, like, I, I think I went for a good, like, probably like four years of no injuries like with, with 100 miles. And then all of a sudden, it was just like every six six months was an injury. Then every three months, every two months, it was like I had some nagging problem with running a hundred miles. So once you get to a point where you're doing that all the time, it's like injuries pop up quite often because your body is like physically breaking down and it's not worth having that like 1% gain in aerobic capacity for, you know, for nothing. It's like those miles don't mean anything. And this is, I kind of learned this when I did the ultra virus. I did not expect to do that well in the ultra virus. I was like, oh yeah, this will be fun if I just run out really hard and just burn out because I know I'm not prepared for this kind of thing because I'm only doing 80, 80 miles a week. I'm like, I'm doing 80 miles a week for the last year. And I'm like, that was a good amount of miles, but it's not nearly enough to do this endurance event. Explain real quick the ultra virus for anyone who didn't follow along. Oh yeah. So the ultra virus is a 12 hour race and you have to do as many five mile loops as you can in 12 hours. My, my thought was, well, how fast should I go? And I'm like, well, I guess I'm going to go like 12 hour world record pace and see when I die. And I kept going and going and going. And that, that wall never happened. It never, it never, I never hit it. And I kept running and running and running all the way until the, the whole race was over. And I, after I was done, I was like, wow, my initial assumption was that I would have to be at a hundred miles plus in order to do good at this event. But apparently my aerobic capacity is already topped out at the mileage that I'm doing. So the only thing to do now is to just get faster at what I'm doing. Cause if I get faster at where I'm at, then I will improve my performances at the lower, um, at lower distances. And this will be, this, this distance will be relatively maintained. So I'm like, you really don't have to run hundred miles. If you want to do a marathon, if you want to be competitive in a marathon, you don't have to do hundred miles. It's just that other coaches, that's all they've ever read. That's all they've ever known. So that's all they say so most coaches will look at it and say like oh you want to be competitive in a marathon you got to go up to 100 miles why well because i read that arthur lydier did that with his athletes and it's like well why did he do that with his athletes because that's his that was his belief that was his thought but it was like his thought was just based on experience from his athletes it really wasn't there there was there was a lot of belief i think the science was haphazardly performed. So it was like, okay, I think we're getting a lot of aerobic capacity here. Could it have stopped at 85, 90? Why a hundred? Oh, because yeah. it's triple digits. Like it looks good. And it's like, uh, I don't I don't think that was a um I think we all take it as gospel when um we say a hundred miles for distance athletes. But in actuality I think I think everybody's aerobic capacity could be met at various mileage. And I, I think you need to really get into it slowly and build up slowly and find out what your limit is that's going to improve your performance, but not burn out your body. And if you're able to stay at 80 or eight, like 80 to 90 miles in, in that range, and you're golden. And that, that to me is way more doable because once you get to 100 miles, guess what? The odds and, and the probability of injury 
they go up exponentially. So now your 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 risk of injury goes up another 15 to 20 percent. And yet how much aerobic capacity did you get? Did you gain from 80 to 100 was maybe one percent if that. So yeah. now it's like, is, is it worth that one percent to get injured? Uh, you know, you got a 15 percent more likelihood of getting injured. It's like, uh, I would say no. I would say your consistency at 80 miles is way more beneficial than having those hundred mile, like, you know, shot to the moon kind of experiences and then getting injured from them. So you're also, you're also speaking to an audience that isn't all built like you. Right. Um, you know, and if we got a lot of OCR listeners and a lot of traditional runner listeners, but I mean, that number doesn't need to be, I mean, we're throwing 80 miles or a hundred miles around, but it, for me, it's 60. Like, you know, I don't see much gain after 60, for example. I know guys like even VJ Jones, who we had on the podcast last week, is running like 30 to 50 miles a week. And guess who win in national series races right now? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't I don't trust VJ, though, because he puts a lot of time on the bike. And like, I, I don't know. I, I think if you count his hours, like how much hours he trains and how much aerobic aerobic performance that he's doing, he actually puts in a lot of time but most of his stuff is on the bike. So he doesn't count that. And it's like, well, if you counted that and you counted that in terms of time and mileage, I think he's closer to around 70 to 80, but, um, and then like Natalie, she does 70 miles. I have some athletes that I coach that do 70 that did well on the ultra virus as well. So it's like that kind of like, like I kind of look at it like where if you go to 70 miles and you are continuing to improve, there's no point in adding more miles until we see a plateau. Then we can add more miles. Like you're, like you're saying, Bracken, it's like once you see you know, your performance is like kind of flatlining, now you can start adding something different. And then that would be more mileage at that point. It's, it's hard to even quantify how many times I've talked to someone or read something or heard an interview where the same thing is said. Well, as soon as we get to our program, we get the guys right up to 80 and the girls right up to 60 or post-collegiately in these training groups. Or we, we just got to get them to 100 as, as quick as we can and then we can start training. And, and I always I cringe when I hear that because you're doing so much scientific work there, but you've decided that the body knows something about 100 mile per week. Yeah, yeah. Your body doesn't know mileage. It knows stress. Yeah. And the hundred mile week does not know your body's stress. Your right. body knows how it reacts to it, but not vice versa. So who can, why would we throw a number or right. we just like round numbers as humans? Right. That's it. But, yeah. but it, it would seem logical that you would not say, all right, the last marathon world record holder ran 120 miles per week. You would look at the rest of his training group and say, how many of them didn't make it to the start line? Because in theory, if they have the best group, they should sweep. But if seven of the 10 didn't make it there because of injury, well, maybe 120 wasn't the secret. 120 was what he survived. He's the one that came out, not because it worked for everyone. It's the, the coaching world. And I do believe it's heading this way because of things like whoop and things like Strava stress score and things like heart rate variability that are starting to be taken into account. Coaching industry should be, and I believe is, heading towards finding out the number that stresses you appropriately enough. And that's your number. Even if the three of us were all in the same training group, five years ago, we'd all head out for 100 to 120 mile weeks if we're marathoners. What I believe is starting to happen and will happen is that Kirk might head out for 60, I might head out for 75, and Mark might head out for 85, and my buddy John's still going to head out for 105 to 110. Because those are the numbers 
that elicit the correct stress level where we maximize our aerobic capabilities and we do not risk injury. Right. And that's, I think, I, I like hearing you say that because that's where the coaching field should be headed. Right. And you even have some old diehards like Rich Diaz, you know, he's a, he's a stodgy old coach, but he is open to the idea of alternative methods of getting your volume in. Yeah. And I think, I think right now that's a big uh, component to training. Like a lot of people, a lot of like modern coaches are looking at it like, um, you know, how do you quantify stress? How do you quantify, um, you know, how much the body's breaking down from each workout? And right now, like, every, like every model that I've seen has been pretty, um, uh, I would say like in its infancy, it needs more refinement. And that's why I look at it and I kind of say, okay, I, I see how you quantified um, stress in this scenario. But like, uh, I don't think this is completely accurate because most of these tests are being done with professional athletes as opposed to everyday athletes, which is the majority of people I coach. So it's like I have to take into account like people going through a stressful day as well, working and doing all the stuff they do is, you know, for their families. And then I have to figure out, well, well, this workout, you know, might be a little bit more stressful considering you, know, <laughs> you, you have a full time job and you're doing all these other things. So, um, like, I can't really rely on a lot of those quantifications. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of what you're saying, like what the technology that we're getting and the numbers that we're seeing on Whoop and all these other different devices, they really are leading us towards understanding the body individually, which is a huge component in understanding what one person can handle and what they their training should be. Yeah. yeah. At the end of the day, as a coach, all you want or an athlete is for the athlete to arrive at the starting line as fit as possible and able to use 100% of that fitness. Right. Even if that fitness is 95% or 98% of their maximum fitness, Many times, 100% maximum fitness comes along with some caveats, like right. stress fracture or overtraining or just having a nagging something because what it took to get there kept you from being able to use all of it. And that's why a lot of the times you have the experience like you had with your 80 or sorry, your 907, where you come off of something bad and you pop a race when you think you're going to need a couple of weeks to get in shape is because you finally absorbed and you can access every single ounce of what you put in. Right. And most people don't get to that point. So the idea of maximizing, like you said, your speed at your current volume, and then you can always move up if you need to, is way more sustainable for the everyday runner than find what my absolute ceiling is and then back off into health. Most people don't have the luxury of that because they also don't have the luxury of a full-time training staff and fortunately or unfortunately access to all the medications that go along with that. Right. Exactly. Let's, um, let's jump to, uh, I think we spent enough time on this. Let's move to, uh, your breaking point with marathoning and then Spartan and your, and your journey there. When, um, when did you leave marathoning and go to OCR? Uh, it was about, uh, 2000, 14 was my first, um, first, uh, Spartan race. So you're almost, you're almost one of the OGs here. Yeah. Like, yeah, I did one race in 2014 and then 2015 is when I did the full season with traveling and everything and going all over the place to all the big races. Um, and that was just like, like I said, in 2014, I, 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 I had, I had a bad experience. It was not good. It was like, I got my, 
got my ass handed to me in my first Spartan race. But um, I, I, I had some friends that continued to do the, the Spartan races and they did really well at um, in, in Sacramento. And that kind of made me perk my attention. I said, wait a minute, like we got our asses handed to us. And now all my friends are finishing in the top 10. Like I need to try this again because I beat them at that race. And I think I could have beat them at that race. And that means I would have got like maybe got on the podium on this race. So I was like, hmm, got to try this again. And then when I went out and tried it again, that's when I placed like fifth. And, and I was actually really close to the podium. And I was like, OK, I could chase after this. I could do this like this. This seems doable. Everything seems like, you know, within my capability. But learning how to do this sport that was a whole nother learning curve. And yeah, that's, that's kind of, um, you know, the training for this sport is a lot different than just running. That's for sure. So when I first started to train for this sport, um, I did a lot of, um, I did a lot of, uh, like, uh, compromise training and I, I did a lot of, uh, uh, simulations. So I would go out in like in 2015 and 16, the main thing was, Hey, go out and do a simulation, like go out and like basically set up a course that was in, 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 in the mountains and just like do, do a Spartan race all the time. And I did that. And that was not a good idea. <laughs> that was really bad because Spartan races take a lot out of the body. I think a lot of people don't realize how much more a Spartan race will affect the body than a regular running race. It is so much more detrimental to the body than a regular running race. So for me, I was like, okay, like doing one, almost doing a, a simulation or a race style simulation almost every single week just killed my body. And well, I, a race, a race effort for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. So but like, I, would, I would just interrupt real quick though. Bracken and I talk about this a bit, like when is compromised running or race simulations right for somebody and who would be a good candidate to do it a lot in their training and who wouldn't. You are the prime candidate to do a ton of compromise running when you first got into the sport because you already laid the foundation, right. which is running. So not that I don't think your theory was broken because yeah. actually I probably would have guided you the same way. Yeah. I just maybe would have approached it a little different. I, I just think like, like you have to like, essentially you, you gotta, you gotta, uh, you know, you gotta get baptized in sweat. <laughs> like You gotta do it. It's like, the, like, there's no way around it. You have to get used to this style of running because it's not regular running. It's something completely different. So I tried to do that in 2015, 16. Then I realized this isn't working. I'm still not, I'm still in the same spot that I've always been. I'm like one of the faster runners, but still falling apart at obstacles. So then in 2017, in 18, I started incorporating, like, and I only did it when I did speed workouts. I would do speed workouts with compromised efforts. So I would do like an 800 meter run and then I'd pick up a bucket and I'd run with the bucket and then 800 meter run. And then I, I was doing that kind of style of training. Um, and I noticed like it was sacrificing the speed I could possibly gain just to get used to this um, transitioning stuff. Um, and then in 2000, in mid 2018, I finally changed up and I said, okay, I can't do this anymore because even once a week, it still takes a lot out of my body. And then I found out that the best thing that works for me is doing my compromise training as a weight workout 
not a speed workout or not anything related to running. So what I do is I hit a fan bike or I'll do a sprint and then I'll come in and then I'll do a OCR movement that's weighted very heavily. Like I'll do like deadlifts and then I'll go right back into like the fan bike and I'll get 15 cal, then jump off and then do deadlifts and then right back on the fan bike and then do 15 cal. My heart rate is jacked through the roof and I'm doing this compromised effort, but it's all in the weight room. And then when I go out and I do my runs, I just focus on my runs. So now I'm able to do faster runs and and faster times on, on the track. And then when I go into the weight room, I'm doing all these compromised efforts. And that seems to be the best, like the best solution for both worlds. Cause now I, when I go to obstacles, I don't have a high, I, I don't, I, my heart rate stays the same. It doesn't spike up. Like when I started racing, I would touch an obstacle and it'd just be like, boom, like, I'm up at 200. Like, how, how the hell that happened? I just touched this thing. And then uh, now it's like, I'll go to an obstacle and it's just, just even kill. Now I can go and just burn it. And because I'm running faster in my repeats, that means I can run harder in the races. So that's kind of what's been the best mix for me. Um, did you did you do strength work before OCR? Yeah, yeah. You were doing strength training as a marathoner. Yeah, yeah. Pretty good, pretty good strength training. I mean, not compared to anything I'm doing now. Now I'm like freaking. I'm I'm lifting pretty dang good. Um, for but you're a lot heavier now, aren't you? You've put on a lot of muscle. Yeah, I I was weighing 135 when I used to do marathon. Now I weigh 150. And do you feel like your speed is still as close or almost as good as it was when you were at 135? I think right now I am actually faster than I've ever been in my life. People need to hear that. They need to know that it's okay to carry a little muscle if it's good weight. I mean, 15 pounds heavier, one would say that that would be a big mistake as far as your athletics. But the obviously the benefits outweigh the cost when it comes to our sport for somebody you correct yes i mean well you got to be you got to you got to be able to lift weight and you got to be able to be comfortable lifting that weight and when you get a double sandbag you got to be okay and and not have it crunch your your sternum and be like you know making your body wilt to the ground so you have to be able to lift that weight and if um if you want to be good at this sport you got to be strong yeah know what i want to i want either of you to argue with me on this i i don't think you will but I believe, and this is just through like living and training myself, that when you carry a little more weight, muscle mass included, maybe even a little more body fat, your body becomes a lot more resilient to your training in the sense where you recover a little bit better, you recover a little bit faster, the big hits don't hit quite as hard, and your body just has a little more surplus of like body to help recover your efforts with. Do you notice that being from 135 pounds to 150 or 55 pounds? Have you noticed your ability to recover improve? Because mine did when I gained weight. Yeah, I noticed noticed that um, my hormone levels were a lot better. Like I, I, and, and that improvement in hormone levels makes everything feel so much better in terms of recovery. So for me, it's like, you know, I'm going from, you know, running a hundred miles and, and really beating my body into the ground in order to get to 130, 35 you know, pounds. 
And then now it's like, I'm not doing that. I'm, I'm, I'm running smarter. I'm lifting better. And like my body is just more like evenly distributed in terms of like hormone, uh, cell, cellular levels, um, and, and doing things correctly. So right now I'm like, yeah, I, I, I absolutely. I feel like the extra weight is definitely worth it. It's like having that extra weight is not a big deal. Um, feeling like I used to feel, I mean, I, I used to tell Natalie all the time, like, I, like, Oh, I, f- I feel foggy again. Like I feel foggy this week, this week, mm-hmm. a whole week of like fogginess. It's like, Oh mm-hmm. man, it was just my, I was really screwed up. Like, like everything was just jacked up. Yeah. So like if I have to have that extra weight to feel good, Oh, I'll take it. It's no problem. Yeah. Bracken, what do you think about that? Yeah. I think we have our, our optimal speed weight. And then I think we have our optimal training and racing weight. And I, th- I look at myself, for example, I got down to 139 pounds my freshman year of college at six foot. And that's kind of typical for a distance runner. And that was probably about my fastest weight. I felt so light and efficient when I ran, but I couldn't maintain it. I was mm-hmm. sick. I was, like you said, a little foggy. I, it was so hard to get up for class in the morning. It was, I was just, I was carrying all this fatigue. I had imbalance issues because when you don't have much muscle, (laughs) when there's not much there, if you have a little bit of imbalance, like it all gets affected. If you have a little bit more muscle on you, you actually are, you just have better stable um, mechanics. And so even though that was my fastest weight, it didn't matter because I couldn't do anything with it. Like in a vacuum, in a, in a lab, that's how you would design me for distance running. But in the real world, I just wasn't the person that could sustain it. You have that one in a hundred that can sustain that weight and they win an Olympic medal, maybe with the use of some pharmaceuticals and maybe with an entire team and nation supporting them on an every single day basis, physically, emotionally, financially, everything. So yeah, I agree that, that maybe my fastest was 139, but all my PRs came at 160 to 165 pounds. Right. So it didn't matter how fast I was, I couldn't absorb it and use it. So you're exactly right. And it allows you to show up the next day and the next day and the next day. Yeah. And maybe be like a somewhat decent human in the process. My training PRs, all my my 10 mile training PR, my 16 mile training PR, my tempo run PRs, they all came at 139 pounds. And I did not have one good race at 139 pounds. So yeah, on paper, that was my fastest and it didn't matter. Mm-hmm. That's why I just, I like to come back to that conversation once in a while because I don't know, weight gets thrown around so damn much in this sport and it, I think to detriment sometimes. And, and it's just good to see like somebody like Mark, like man, like to be so focused, like for that long on such a specific sport and being able to get out of that mindset into the one you have now and allow yourself to gain muscle mass and allow yourself to do those things. It's just good for people to hear, I think. Um, and, and you're still performing obviously. So, yeah, I think a lot of, uh, coaches put an emphasis on weight and I, I just, I never, I never prescribed to that because like no coach has ever told me anything about weight ever, you know, like no coach ever told me like, Oh, you know, you, I think you're a little heavy for this or anything like that. So because that's because you were 135 pounds, Mark, of course I didn't tell you. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and I didn't realize that until like, you know, I talked to my friends after and they were like, Oh yeah. Coach would always tell me like, yeah, you, you could use a little, you stand to lose a few pounds. And I'm like, shit, man, like I never heard this. And then I hear all these stories of like, you know, some like, you know, uh, guys that are really 
like six foot and then like they're weighing 135 pounds and I'm like, dude, that's, that's not healthy. Like, what are you doing? And it's like, well, that's what you got to do to be competitive. And I'm like, dude, that's just crazy. Like you will not be able to sustain good hormone levels or any type of health at that weight. Like you're just not going to do it. it it's, it's horrible for your body. So like for me, I just kind of let my body do it naturally. I mean, I was naturally at 135, like eating well and eating all the time and, you know, not trying to, not trying to cut at all. And like, it was just mileage, like all the mileage I ran, that's how, why I was so light. I was burning too many calories. I couldn't, couldn't get enough food in, but, um, yeah. So like when I hear people like, like actually like starve themselves and like do all this stuff just to make weight, basically, I'm like, that's not, this is, this is that you shouldn't be doing that. Like it's, it, it, your body operates so much better when you give it good fuel and, 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 and um, you know, you're able to train properly over time. That's all that matters. Consistency over time, running strong. That's the main thing. Uh, anything else is like yeah, just using weight just to improve performance. Not a good idea. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a very um, like, like, you know, it, it's not sustainable essentially. Um, Mark, I want to jump forward in time a little bit because I want two things I definitely want to chat about, and I'm just seeing where we're at for time already. Um, one is this, I want to jump forward to present day and your, and your racing. And obviously you've had some success. I know you were in 2018, you were third at a U.S. national series race. You've knocked on the door how many times, uh, at those big races? I believe you were maybe seventh at Spartan worlds two years ago, somewhere around there. Um, and I feel like when we talk about guys in our sport and everybody talks about the speedster Mark Botris, you know, and Woods gets brought up and maybe VJ starts to enter the equation and all that thing now, but you still seem to be sort of the epitome of the speed situation in people's minds. Um, not that I want to put it, not a negative twist on this, but what do you think is missing for you to, to become that consistent podium guy on the national series level? Like what, I'm sure you're working those puzzle pieces out in your head yeah, and saying, yeah. I know I'm capable. If anybody's got to believe they're capable, it's got to be you. Like if yeah. we're looking at contenders, what are we, what are we doing to achieve that? Or what needs to happen in your racing and training? And I, and for example, I know you've gone out aggressive and you're not afraid to do so. And then sometimes it'll catch you later in a race. Sometimes. Yeah. Um, I, I, I just think like, man, like that guy is due and I just, I want to know what he's working on to get there. Yeah. Like, um, a lot of the, uh, the things that I'm working on is like, I understand, like, like when I look at it in terms of running strength and transitions, like I have every single element checked off. I have all the boxes checked off. Everything looks good in terms of training right now. Like, um, right before Jacksonville, I was my, my strength was at its all-time high. I was, uh, you know, I was deadlifting 350. I was feeling good uh, with the strength component. Um, when I when I was doing my runs, I I was doing speed workouts and I was hitting uh, for my uh, my 600 repeats. I was down to like um, I think I was running like one 134s. So it's like that that's freaking fast. With and, what kind of rest? Uh, I do them in sets. So I do a 600. Then I do a short rest, which usually is like a minute. And then I do a 600 and then I do a three minute rest. So I kind of stress the system in one shot 
And then I, I give myself a big rest because I want to stress the system again. And I'm running, I'm running pretty fast. It's not like I'm running slow here. So it's like, I need time to recover from that bout of, you know, two hits and then I do it, do it again. So I, and then my mile repeats were getting down to like, uh, like close to like four thirty, four thirty threes, four thirty fours. So I'm like, yeah, I had all the boxes checked. Like, why didn't I perform when it came to um, Jacksonville? And a lot of it had to do with mentality. Uh, when I was going, when I'm going into races, I think like I, I, I get too excited. I get too amped up, and I'm thinking to myself like exactly what you're thinking, Kirk. Like, this is it. This is it. This is my moment. It's finally time. It's my time. I fi- I'm finally going to do it. All the boxes are checked. I get, I get all amped up. I get all excited. And then I end up shitting the bed essentially because I'll have a bad performance on that day. And it, it mostly comes down to how I'm going into races. And this is something I tried to work on when I did the um, ultra virus thing. I was like, okay, when I had the mentality for the ultravirus, I told myself this, I need to hone in and focus in on what the hell I'm doing pre-race and race day to get myself mentally checked in and not get over excited about how fit I am. So when I went into the ultravirus, I was thinking to myself, today's going to hurt. Today's going to be hard. It's supposed to be hard. And I need to go into this thing, understanding that this is going to be a very difficult thing and go in there with my best effort. And then I did a really good job in that race. When I went into Jacksonville, it was, oh, this is my race. No one deserves to win but me. I, I, I'm going to win this race. And even like I messed up by not thinking about the elements of the race. When I heard your guys' um, breakdown of the course pre-race, if I would have listened to that gosh damn freaking <laughs> podcast <laughs> before the race, I, my whole race would have been totally different because you guys had the right idea about the water, the water element in, in that race. Mm-hmm. When I got to that water, I, for some reason, thought I was in a good position. And I was like, oh, I'll just stay right here. This is fine. Not understanding that Kempson was going to go like freaking super slow in that gosh damn thing and hold me back. You know, so it's like we like Kempson was the first one there. And we all ran up on him like so quickly. And I was like, what are you doing? Like, are you going to move through this water or are you just going to take a break? And once we passed him, he woke up and then he started moving. But the thing is, he let everybody else catch up to us. And I was like, well, we had a lead and now it's gone because you're you're holding everybody else back in the water. And then we finally get out of the water. And then it was like, okay, it was it was like we started the race over again. And I was like, well, what was the point of us going hard at the start and not using it? And you guys brought that up, which is like we could have basically a race restart when we hit the water. And that's basically what it was. So now understanding that it's like had I gotten there first and broken away in the water and been kind of in my own little world, I think I could have had a really solid lead getting out of the water and then give myself a chance to win. But the way I did, the way I executed the race, I did not give myself a chance to perform to my train. And that was a mistake I made. So I was, uh, you know, looking at the elements that I need to work on. It's, you know, and I went into that race thinking, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to podium today for sure. And like, uh, all I have to do is just show up. And that's not, that's not the right mentality. The mentality is 
you need to go into races thinking you're going to hurt and it's going to freaking suck. And no matter how fit you are, it does not matter. You are going to bleed out there and it's going to suck. And if you have that mentality, you have a better preparation for what's about to happen because you guys are not going to go out quietly into that, <laughs> into the night and just say, Oh yeah, you're, you're in the best shape, Mark here. Here's a free race. It's like, that doesn't happen. No, you guys are going to put up fights and you guys are going to, you know, you're going to make it the hardest it could possibly be for anybody to win. And I, I'm going to do the same for anybody else. So the person who wins is going to hurt. It's, it's not going to be comfortable, but you have to have that mentality that you're going to, you're going to run, you're going to, you're going to go into the a deep dark cave and, you got to be comfortable with that. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't change anything about your training. It's all you think in between the ears. I think so. I think it's yeah. in the ears. Cause I mean, when you look at where my training's at specifically with my strength and my running and everything else, it's like, I, I, I think from, if I was a coach and I try to do that, I try to look at myself from an outside perspective and I'm looking at what element I'm, I'm kind of searching for to, to, to improve upon. And it's like, well, how, how, how much faster do you need to be? Like, how much stronger do you want to get? It's like, you're at a point right now where you should be winning. And like, that's kind of where I'm looking at it as a coach and saying like, why aren't you winning? Why can't you win these races? And, and then I think about like the nights leading up to the races and how much anxiety I have and how much like, how much I'm thinking about it. Like, Oh man, I'm going to win. I'm going to win. win. This is it. This is it. This is it. And I was like, well, calm down, man. You didn't win yet. (laughs) Like, You need to go out there and perform first. And I think that's what I need to focus on most is getting that right performance down because the week before I, I did a great performance at a sprint um, in San Jose ran fantastic. Everything was perfect. My heart rate did not go up in any of the obstacles I was running all out and I was feeling great. And I was like, wow, I'm running really good. And then once I hit the spear, I was like, shut it down. Like, that's it. Uh, I got this race pretty much cinched up. So what happened from one week to another? Did I lose fitness? Absolutely not. That's impossible for me to lose fitness in a gosh dang week. But did my mentality change from a regular race to a series race? You're damn right it did. Like I, I knew that like, you know, this is it. This is my moment. This is my, you know, this is my moment where I break out and everyone sees like how, how, uh, how I can perform. And it didn't happen because I was too wrapped up in that whole scenario of like me breaking out and having a good. So now I've kind of calmed down and said, okay, just, just relax and run your hardest. And that's all that matters. It's tough. It's tough because our sport is, is so punishing mentally that when you go in excited and confident, it slaps you real abruptly with everything hurts. Yeah. And that's tricky to do. But when I, me as an outsider, as a, as a listener or as a runner, I hear you start talking about some of the things you're doing. And I realize real quickly that you're running workouts no one else in the sport runs. Yeah. No one else in the sport is capable of running. So I think it's the time now that you, you tell us about it. Yeah. What, what, what is your training philosophy? You talked about how people training correctly. I want to hear what you are doing that has allowed you to get to that point with your running because you shouldn't be getting faster at this point. You're in your thirties. You have kids, you have stress, you, you, you've done all that. Why, what are you doing now that's working? Yeah. Like, uh, pretty much like I, I was really inspired. Um, like 
inadvertently, I guess, by the, uh, the two hour marathon, uh, attempt. And I was like, I, I was more pissed than I was happy about it. Um, <laughs> cause I was like, Oh, this is impossible. This is bullshit. Like this is the guys on synthetics. This is horrible. But then I thought about it and I said, okay, wait a minute. Like before you go running off and thinking like it's impossible and all this crap, how would, how would you make this possible? Like what, what would be the necessary components to make this possible? And then I kind of broke it down and, 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 and looked at it from a, a coaching pr perspective and started saying, oh, okay, this is what elements that needed to be done in order for this to happen. And then I was like, well, this is a lot, this is a way better training than I did for the marathon when I looked at it that way. What and, did you break it down into? Okay. So like hear. pretty much like when I did marathon training, I was doing a lot of tempo runs. And it was like, I would do 10 mile tempo runs. And then, um, ever, ever so often I would do like a, uh, I, I call them half and half. So I would do like, I would run half of, of the, of, of, of a run at like six minute pace. And then I would drop that to race pace. And those would be like longer distance runs. So it would be like, you know, it, it could be like 16 mile runs. So eight miles would be easy and eight miles would be at, you know, five flat pace. So you'd go from eight miles at six minute pace to eight miles at five minute pace. And that was like the big test of like whether or not you were going to be able to hold pace. So just, <laughs> so, um, so that was like, that, that was my big indicator and all this stuff. But what I realized is that it's all based on your velocity. Okay. And that, that's basically how fast you're moving. Right. And your velocity is the most important component into your training stimulus, right? So if my aerobic, if I'm going on aerobic, right, my maximum velocity on aerobic needs to be freaking fast in order for it to feel comfortable. So in other words, when you're doing aerobic stimulus, that means you're doing anything over uh, the four minute barrier. Like it's about like three and a half to four minutes. Once you go beyond that time frame, now you're in aerobic and aerobic, uh, in order to have my max velocity in aerobic, basically I got to go really fast in a mile repeat. That's what that means. So when I was doing uh, marathoning, I really didn't do mile repeats. And I was like, wow, that was a, instead of doing a tempo every single week, I should have been fluctuating with a tempo run and then two mile repeats, and then mile repeats. And the reason why is because I want to work on my, my maximum velocity at aerobic stimulus. And that means I'm working on something that's faster than a tempo run. Because most people do tempo runs and they're like, okay, I did a tempo run. That's great. But I don't, I don't, I don't like to stay in that tempo run anymore. So I'll do a tempo run one week, then I'll come back with two mile repeats, and then I'll do mile repeats. And the whole idea is to push that um, aerobic velocity faster. So now I'm trying to get faster on every single workout. So in my tempo runs, I'll do like a five, I'll average like five flats. And then when I do two mile repeats, now I'm going for like four fifties. And then when I do mile repeats, now I'm going for like four forties or faster. So that helps get that aerobic stimulus into maximum velocity now i'm going as fast as i can in that stimulus so in in the same in the same respect that's what i i've done with my training i've switched it up where instead of just doing tempo runs i'm like no 
that's not going to help me if I want to do, if I want to get faster aerobically, I need to get faster in doing shorter distances. And as, as I pull those distances down, it makes the other distances go down as well. So that's pretty much how my trajectory has gone. And like I said, I, I drove it down to in February doing like 434s for mile repeats. And that was pretty, pretty, pretty good. And I, I try not to look at um, like, I think it's a big mistake that people use like VO2 max and like that kind of stuff. And they're like, oh, I can't go over this heart rate and I need to stay here. Da, da, da. I'm like, some days you feel good and like you got to let it rip. <laughs> you got to go. You're feeling good. And then five flats feel easy. Well, then go faster. It's like you're not going to get like to me. It's like if you if you train with heart rate and you train with like that same like 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 BO2 max and all that stuff, it's like you're going to stay at the same level. Like you're not going to improve because you need stress. If you stress it out and you you go for it, then you're going to get some improvements. But like you can't stress it all the time. But like every once in a while, it's like, yeah, let it rip. If you don't let it rip, then you're, you're going to be stuck at the same level over and over and over. And it's like, well, you know, you keep training at the same level all the time. What would you expect to happen? Improvement? Like, doesn't make sense. So to me, it's like, you, you want to run faster. You got to run fast. You know, like, that's how, that's what it takes to get better. You got to run faster. And if you stay at a certain heart rate, um, it, it's not going to help. It's like, you're just going to stay at that level. And it's like, Oh no, like I don't want to run too fast right now. It's like, the hell you're talking on your speed days on your quality days on my quality days yeah mm-hmm. on my easy days i i just i i tell myself um i want to heal my body on my easy days so I'll, I'll i'll have that mantra in my head like heal the body heal the body i want to heal and build not destroy and then if i have that mantra I, I don't i don't go fast i just chill yeah one of your ends of the spectrum is very slow the other one is hard you're working faster than what you want to be able to do. And one of the versions you do that is with mile intervals, two mile repeats, tempo runs, alternating weeks. What about the flip side of that quality day coin? What are you doing on your faster than race pace days? Okay. So I'm faster than race pace days. Now I'm working on my aerobic anaerobic mix as they call it. Cause like you have anaerobic, which is complete speed and anaerobic is and like I said, you want to work on your maximum velocity in that in that stimulus. So you go out and you do a um, like you are anaerobic for 45 seconds, roughly 45 seconds. So for some people, that could be 300 meters of pure speed. But if you slow down in that 300 meters, you're not going at your maximum velocity. So you want to achieve your maximum velocity in that, in that, in that speed workout. So for me, it happens to be 150s. Like 150s, I can rip a 150. The minute I go to 200s, I kind of slow down a little bit. So for me, if I do more reps at 150 going my maximum speed, that is going to be more beneficial than any other anaerobic workout that I could do. So that's where I gain most of my fitness in anaerobic is the 150. For other people, it's other distances, but you really got to hone in on what you're running your fastest at. And that's what your anaerobic is going to be. Now, when it comes to the mix, that's anaerobic plus aerobic. That zone exists after 45 seconds. So after 45 seconds, now you've entered that zone. If you're somebody that's fast, 
and you're doing a 400, you're only in that zone for 100 meters, which is not very much work. So if you look at that stimulus, if you're in that zone for 100 meters, it's like your time under tension is like not even worth it. It's like you've just done 100 meters worth of work. So if you want to do a mile worth of work in that stimulus, you'd have to do 16 repeats just to feel something worth feeling. So that's why if you I, recovered fully in between each one. Right. If you recovered fully in, in between each one. And I usually do like most people do like a 400 and then they get a minute rest. But by that time, your heart rate has dropped immensely because it does it. It takes a long time for your heart rate to get up to that high. So it's like if you were to do a 400 all out, your heart rate would barely be at like 130 to 140. It wouldn't be through the roof, but you would be super tired because you've just completed a 300, which is without oxygen the whole damn way. And then you did a hundred meters at, oh yeah, now I'm hurting for a hundred meters, but your heart rate's not even there yet. Your heart rate barely realized like, oh shit, we're running. Like, all right, let's start pumping blood. And it's like, oh, it's over. Oh, thank God. Like that was easy. And then that's why like, I don't like to do 400s because 400s barely get that stimulus going for that mix, that anaerobic, aerobic um, stimulus. So after 45 seconds, it exists all the way up to four minutes, but you want to be at that stimulus at your highest velocity. So that's why I do 600s. So 600s, I'm able to put out like 134s. Um, I'm hoping to go down to like, like 130s. And when you're at that stimulus, now you're working hard, you get 300 meters worth of work and you're at your highest velocity in that attempt of 300 meters when you're, when you're in that stimulus. So now you're like each repeat you do is 300 meters worth of work. So if you're to do eight of them, now you get 2,400 meters worth of stimulus and you didn't waste your time, you know, being out there all damn day doing 16, 400s. Now, now you're there and you're like, okay, I just did eight, 600s and I, I maximize my time and I'm going to maximize my time in that stimulus because I'm focused on the highest velocity I can I can achieve in that stimulus. So, so you're looking at it from a, a biological level here, where you're saying 45 seconds and less, that's one of my interval range. The other one is 45 to four, 45 seconds up to four minutes, that's my other interval range. Mm-hmm. And then four minutes and longer, that would be my you know aerobic power intervals or whatever you wanna call them. So you have three styles and then amongst those three, you're trying to find the balance of the longest I can go within that range while keeping the fastest velocity I can keep. And that's where you settle on 150s, 600s, and then mile repeats. That's right. Yep. Okay. So you have three styles of main intervals you do. Mm-hmm. How do you spread those out? How often do you repeat them? And do you periodize that? Uh, the period, yeah, I periodize that. And I also do a competitive phase. So the competitive phase is like, I mostly focus on like, I'll do one of those workouts. I'll do each one of those workouts a week. So that means I'm doing a speed workout, I'm doing a mixed workout, and I'm doing a um, like a aerobic workout. So that's during the competitive phase. When I'm doing my base phase, and that's where I spend most of my time is my base phase. I'll do one aerobic workout and one mixed workout, and I will do no speed workouts. Um, I don't work on speed at all, like in terms of like speed speed, uh, because usually I'll do strides or something like that, um, just to like keep my speed healthy. But, um, like for me, speed comes pretty quickly. Like I, I, I'll go from like a 30 second, 200 to a 26 second, 200 in two weeks. 
So mm-hmm. it's like, I don't need to spend a lot of time on that, on that stimulus because I know it comes really quick. And if you spend a lot of time on that stimulus, you're, it's not good um, uh, for recovery because like it, it, it damages your body pretty hard. So I'm like, I don't, I don't like to spend a lot of time in there. Yeah. So, so are you a, you're a three quality workout a week guy then when you're competition phase? when it comes to competition uh, phase. Yes. But when it comes to um, base phase, I only do two quality workouts a week. And are you, are you transferring a lot of these into incline work then like the 45 second minute, 35 second, and then let's say five minute type intervals to simulate mile repeat 600s and 150s. Will you do that similar style on incline work? I, I will do it for the aerobic run only. So only okay. the aerobic effort, like I'll do like 10, 10 minute hill repeats or something like that. When it comes to the speed, I, I am really adamant about being on the track for that workout because like I need to see the data each lap. I, each repeat, I need to see where I was. I need to see what the time was, how fast I ran it, what, what, where, where I was and how I felt. Cause if I do it on, on like a hill, like, I, I don't know what the splits are. I don't, I don't know exactly. Like if, if I'm, I'm not going to hit a 600, I'm barely going, I'm going off a of time. Like you'll go like 90 seconds or you'll mm-hmm. go like um, maybe two minutes or something like that. And when you're doing that, it's like, you're, you're not, you're, you're not going to hit the same, distance every single time you're going up a hill so you're going to hit different varies you're going to hit different variations or if you stay on the same hill you're going to get way too much rest because you're going to come down and now you've got you're coming down for two minutes so what about treadmill work treadmill work um treadmill work is might work for that that might that might be something that's doable in treadmill work um it's like it's like i said i i like doing the speed work on the track and then I'll do the, the aerobic work on the hills because it's just like, I, I want to make sure that my legs can turn over at its max velocity and that become the, the kind of like the, 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 the basis of my speed work so that when I go to the hills, it transfers over. It's like, Oh, now that I got this fast turnover, now I go to the hills and now I got that, that power that it, 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 it kind of goes that way. Cause I've tried to do that, like doing, two hill repeat workouts a week and it did not improve my, my hill running. I was like, Oh, it's not, not, not as good as when I just do aerobically doing my hills and then speed workouts on the track. I noticed that makes me faster on the hills. So that balance. Yeah. Um, as far as, uh, coming up goes, I'd love to keep dwelling on your training, but I think we're at two hours already. So, uh, I just want to know if you have any races coming up. Uh, Bracken, did you want to dive more into the training? Or are you are you cool with where we left that? It's going to have to be next time. Yeah, it's going to have to be because we just it's, somehow this is just uh, flew by. But um, are you racing at all this fall? Uh, anything coming up for you? Are you building towards twenty twenty one? You know, I was supposed to race at Kodiak this week, but um, they have uh, what you call it? They have fires, so no racing at Kodiak. So that that got shut down. Um, yeah, I mean, 2020 has been really like hit or miss when it comes to races. So, um, I guess I'm going to do that, uh, that OCR stars thing. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, I have a, uh, uh, I think on September 25th, I'm doing like a coaching clinic kind of thing where I, I, am, I, you know, people are, are just allowed to pick my brain and, uh, we go over some training and training that we're going to do and, um, doing some hill repeat workouts and 
having some fun and uh, cool. having a fun day. Yeah. But you uh, you got to listen to our podcast that dropped this morning on how to train for OCR stars. Oh yeah, I, I saw that. Yeah, I, we I, give away I, all the, the tips and tricks and secrts. Oh nice. Although really, it's Mark Batra style training. Oh cool, nice. Yeah, it is actually. separation of strength and speed. Yeah, yeah, I like I like I like doing my stuff separate and like basically I call it transition work, which is like compromised weightlifting, and it's like it works out pretty well. I think it's a it's a good mix. Yeah. Awesome. Stuff. Where um where can people find you if they want to be kept up to date on on what's going on? And I like give you an opportunity to who's who's supporting you this year. You want to talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, you can follow me on Instagram at uh, at mgb racing, and um, uh, you can uh, we have I have a website with my coaching stuff. It's uh, mgb racing dot com, um, and yeah, that's pretty much. Uh, my stuff uh, right now I'm being supported by uh, BJ shoes, uh, you know, best grip on the planet. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. And uh, I, I have um, uh, uh, a sponsorship with um, uh, a shock energy drink. And um, I, I use that for the 85 mile attempt and uh, had no problems the whole race. So I, I think it's actually a really good product. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's solid. So, uh, those jerks never sent me my money. Oh, they didn't send you your money. I signed the contract, everything good to go. I still get the drink sent to me, but I don't, I never got the check, unfortunately. So oh, must have, must have went to your house. Yeah. <laughs> I, they, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I like their product. It's, it's kind of weird. I don't know if they're going to switch their marketing, um, because it looked like they were going to go full into Spartan. And then um, it looks like they changed their marketing on their Instagram. But, um, you know, it, 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 it kind of happened with 2020 um, and, and, and us not being able to race. I think for them, it was kind of like, hey, we got to market in some way and these guys aren't racing. So what are we going to do? So they kind of put together a like um, a, a marketing plan for them that, that kind of works for for the pandemic. So, yeah, because yeah, I know they, they want to be, you know, taken as a serious product as as a um as a performance product and for me it worked really well so i'm like i i, I believe in it so let's uh let's get it going <laughs> yeah so yeah and then um that's uh pretty much uh pretty much it yeah that's the, the those two and um i think that's it yeah so that's all my sponsors got two <laughs> Yeah, I got nothing. I got nothing else I want to add. What about you, Bracken? Oh, we we could talk training all day, Mark. Yeah, talk training all day. But you're just gonna have to come back on the show. I feel like we've said that to several of the athlete coaches in the sport because there's so many nuances to the sport to talk about and to dive into. We didn't even talk about oh, what time trials you use, how your compromise running your transition workouts look, uh, how your volume varies, what your base build looks like, what you consider your competition phase because we compete from February to October. You know, we have so much to discuss next time. So let's just bookmark it and come back to it. All right. Sounds good. Good talking with you guys. Yeah. And thanks, Natalie, for taking over and uh, keeping the kids in check during this. This <laughs> <laughs> is my life. This is my life. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Mark. All right. See you, Mark. Later. Thank you.